talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine inviting the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. High gas prices have replaced COVID-19 as the big story. Unfortunately, the Prime Minister hasn't noticed. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Will Weber on the board. Will Erskine, I think, tucked in there somewhere, too. Uh, to discuss the opening song. And in the newsroom, Diane and Dave, as Kurt mentioned, uh, welcome to Hamilton today. Glad to have you with us. So uh, anyway, every so often, you know, you throw it out there when we're putting the show together. And I say, hey, kids, because we changed the top hour tune, the the opening of the of the show every single day. Uh, you know, I think we started doing that during COVID and then we ran out of ideas. Oh, maybe I should replace we with I. I ran out of ideas. So then I started throwing it out to the kids and said, okay, I need a song. Somebody pick a song. And it's kind of, and it's great because they're younger than me and it's a very diverse group and, and you get all kinds of stuff. Um, I won't get into that. That's a whole other story. So anyway, I throw it out there today. Hey, anybody want to pick a song for today? Dave Woodard, newsman jumps up. And he says, uh, since it's streaming, which in the old days meant charting, uh, you know, in this song is coming back, let's do uh, Kate Bush running up that hill. Uh, and I started howling because my daughter has been singing it in the house for Lord knows how long now, several days, weeks, whatever. Uh, however long this show's been out, which is called Stranger Things, and this is a piece of music from it, which I find very amusing as a forward DJ, is that I remember, as my wife did, and my wife pointed out, that song's on my playlist. I've been listening to that for years. We remember it the first time out. And uh, the first time out, and it wasn't really a hit. It was sort of an alternative song. You heard it on... Uh, you know, play uh, radio stations like The Edge, whatever. Um, but you did, it wasn't a mainstream hit song, per se. And uh, going back, doing a, a little bit of research, 1985, it went to number 30 uh, on the Hot 100 charts. So now that's the equality or the equal of streaming now. And the funny thing is, is right now, Kate Bush is dealing with a top 10 song in the United Kingdom for streaming. So uh, 37 years later... 37 years later, a song that was uh, alternative album radio, uh, you know, at best, popular song, I mean, had a great following, uh, had a great duet with Pete Gabriel, uh, but didn't really have mainstream success, has now, you know, kids that are like 19 and 20 singing the song. So uh, there you go. Uh, And there's many stories of that in pop music and in rock and roll. So then I started asking, well, who's seen the show? So it, the two Wills have seen the show, and I think Dave's seen the show, but he hasn't seen the the new the, the latest season, which I guess is is what my uh, daughter's watching. I don't know. It, well, if that song's in it, it probably is. So uh, all right, pipe up, Wills. What's this show about? And it's called it's the show is Stranger Things. I understand we're into season four of this. Yeah, that's right. We are on season four, and I you know Weber and I were talking about this. I think the easiest way to describe it is one giant love letter to all the 
Steven Spielberg movies from the 80s, all the Stephen King books, and a lot of the, even the comics that were coming out around that time. It's all 80s pop culture. It's focused around the group of kind of the nerdy outsider kids. So that's what, you know, people who would be listening to Kate Bush. And I know in, <laughs> in the new season, uh, you know, they find out one of the kids, uh, one of the girls, the group of boys has started talking to. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, that's the thing. It, it it's It's a lot of nostalgia for people. Um, but one of the girls, Kate Bush, is her favorite artist. That's her new favorite song. And so it gets some play, and I think it has some emotional resonance at some point without uh, giving anything away. It sounds like it's a heavy happy days. <laughs> yes, yes. That is a perfect description. It's heavy happy days in the 80s. Happy then, days. Clerks, oh, that's why my daughter. That's why, that's why when I started telling her Kate Bush stories, my daughter goes, you're, you're like looking like a potsy here. You know? <laughs> Yeah, and then you got to throw in a little bit because again, it's 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 '80s and it's got that Stephen King influence. There's a little bit of uh, Carrie, maybe some Firestarter. There's see, government you're going more of that. Stuff. You're going more of the really extreme side of this. I thought this was more like a Riverdale. Will, what are your Will Weber? What are your thoughts on this? Is this not like just a heavy Riverdale? It's uh, well, it's a bit lighter than Riverdale. It's also significantly more oh, watchable. Yeah. Yes. Oh gosh. Yes. <laughs> it, it's more meant for like fourteen-year-olds, whereas I'd classify Riverdale as like for seventeen-ish, like okay. in that area. All right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm only uh, in Riverdale is written with Mad Libs and a dartboard. I think so. <laughs> this is more like E.T., where the Once kids again, are allowed to swear. Oh. <laughs> yes. Yes. This is E.T. where the kids get to swear. I, I give ah. you the trophy. You nailed it, Weber. That's the right way to get I'm, at it. I've only I've been in and out when they're watching it. I'm sort of watching little things. And the first thing I'm noticing is, like, I had a shirt like that. Because <laughs> I, I think Riverdale was set in night. Or sorry, not Riverdale. Um, what the heck is it called again? Stranger Things. Stranger, Stranger things, things, yeah. It's set in 1980. Is that right? It's uh, set in 1984 by now, but yes. Yes. They're, they're oh, okay. referencing Yoda and Star Wars and all that, yeah. So definitely so, the peak of fashion. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, cause I, and then I said, because I, I asked Alicia that. She goes, you know, it started in 1980, and I forgot we were four seasons in. So she said, it's set in 1980. And maybe, she, you know. But the, the Kate Bush is in the latest season, correct? Yes. So, okay, so it must be the last season she's watching. So anyway, uh, I said, well, in 1980, I was in grade 12. You're oh, there you go. There you go. It's your age group. Dude, you might have to watch this show and then, you know, experience the your response, nostalgia. Your response was much gentler than what hers was. <laughs> God <laughs> I will give you that. Yeah, I exactly. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, that was, it was very, but it's very bizarre because, and I think because it's sort of running up that hill, it's kind of a struggling song and that's where our headspaces are, our headspace is right now. Yeah. But yeah, my, my daughter is literally singing this song around the house. So she's running up the stairs singing, I'm running <laughs> up that hill. So it's, it's very bizarre. But you know what I said to Will Weber Erskine is that this is all the more reason for artists to sell their catalogs. Hmm. Because when you sell the catalog, it's not about you anymore. It's about other platforms, other artists taking your music and then weaving it into their projects in some way. And here's a perfect example. Here's Kate Bush with a number of the top 10 hit on her hands in the UK. And it never went to, you know, past number 30. So a very bizarre situation and a great uh, indicator of where we are in music. Thanks, the two Wells, for uh, giving us an update on Stranger Things and your critique of the show. I'm not sure whether I'm going to watch it or not. Well, th uh, thank you for bringing us on and having us uh, run up that hill with you, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'll leave it at that. Are you into gin? Do you like the gin? 
Uh, not the card game, the drink. Although, well, we'll leave it at that. Let's not complicate the issue. Uh, I remember uh, being a kid in the 70s, and my Aunt Nancy was always drinking gin. And gin was, you know, the cocktails seemed to be more of a thing then, although they've sort of, you know, made a resurgence. And we're certainly hearing more and more about this drink. Um, and, you know, with coolers and ciders, and there's so many different options now, uh, where is the old-fashioned cocktail in all of this? Where is gin? Well... They have their own day. Saturday, June 11th, is World Gin Day. And in honor of the occasion, several gin distilleries have come together to launch Ontario's first after, our first ever craft gin trail. A self-guided tour route for gin lovers. To find out more, uh, Marty Van Vliet is with us, co-owner of Alora's Distilling Company, and with us now. Marty, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you for having me. So tell us about Alora Distilling Company. Uh, the Alora Distilling Company was founded two years ago we opened up right when the pandemic started um we are a full grain to glass distillery we make a variety of, of products but we really do specialize in gin gin is gin is uh what we do i think the best so why during the midst of a global pandemic uh well the process actually to set up a distillery is quite long uh we started it in 2016 ah. it just happened that our opening date coincided with the pandemic that's a whole other discussion, I'm guessing. So, uh, tell us about gin. It, it is, uh, yes. <laughs> tell us about gin, and is it going through a resurgence? Uh, again, there seems to be so many, so many different options out there now. Uh, where is the the classic cocktail in all of this, and specifically gin? So, uh, gin and cocktails both uh, started to have a resurgence in the late 1990s into the 2000s. Um, Gin saw the craft movement form in the UK in the early 2000s, and then that spread to the United States and then finally came to Canada in the teens here. Um, so craft distilling allows gin to really blossom and become the great drink that it can be. It can be juniper. It has to be juniper for, but after that, you can add any kind of botanical to it. So gin can capture a wide variety of flavor um, as long as it has juniper fur. That, so that's talk, why gin has become so exciting to a lot of people. So talk about the the process, the distilling process of it, and then the options when the flavor, when it's at the stage to add flavor or change flavor. Uh, so gin starts with vodka. Uh, vodka is the base. Um, we would take the vodka that we would make, um, otherwise called neutral grain spirit, and then we would um, water it down to 65%. We would do a large tea bag of botanicals, obviously with juniper being the first, and then often ones like coriander or anise, they're very common, or unusual ones like yuzu or um, rosehip. Depending on what you're trying to do, we combine the botanicals um, in uh, you know, our secret formulas, I can't tell you those, uh, in the bag, and then we macerate it for about six hours, and then we run the still again, and what comes out the other end is gin. Uh, gin, the flavored gin or the options that we have now, I don't want to call it flavored gin. Um, it makes it sound cheap, but you know, uh, the, the, the options that we have here, um, uh, the different flavors, options that we have, was that always the case or, or was basic gin, basic gin back in the day. And now we've, it's evolved to where we are now. No, no, you're correct. It was basic gin was basic gin all the way until the 1980s. It was fundamentally just juniper flavor. Mm -hmm. That's all you were getting. Um, 
Bombay Sapphire changed that in the 1980s when they started inducing their 21 botanicals. Right. And then, as I said, the craft gin movements really moved it up to a whole nother level. Um, so now people are adding flavors uh, from such as rhubarb in the spring and uh, really making them uh, the, the, the sky's the limit on the variety of flavors. In the craft gin trail grouping of six distilleries, we have 25 different gins to pick from. So there's really lots of options to to be creative here. Oh, uh, like I said, the sky is the limit. So um, tell us a a little bit about the Craft Gin Trail and what this is all about. So there's uh, the Craft Gin, um, the Craft Gin business really took off here starting around 2009 in Ontario, and it's been growing ever since. Uh, We're lucky in our area. We have a lot of really great talented craft distillers. So um, we have uh, Junction 56 in Stratford. We have Wildebald um, on their farm just outside of Ayr. In Guelph, we have Dixon's and we have Spring Mill distillers. Um, in Arthur, we have uh, Silver Fox Distillery. And here in Allure, we have the Allure Distilling Company. And we're all relatively close to each other and we're all using local ingredients and grains. Um, so we have a lot to offer that that speaks about the local area. Um, and we thought we'd f- pool our resources and uh, form the craft gin trail so that people could come out and really start to taste what this area offers. So what's it like when you would go into one of these establishments, similar to a wine tasting scenario? Yeah, there's, there's uh, always samples available. Um, it varies from each distillery. Each distillery has different facilities, like, for example, at the uh, Lord Distilling Company, you, we serve cocktails. So you can go upstairs at, at, to the Royal Room and have a flight of cocktails if you like. Right. Some distilleries have that. Some distilleries don't have that. It depends on, on how big they are. Uh, but you can always get free samples when you go in. Yeah. And is this something that is savored by itself or, as you said, in a cocktail with the different flavors? Well, I have to say that's a, that would be a personal preference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I like a nice gin and I, I prefer a gin in, in a in a lovely martini where you really get to taste it. Right. But uh, lots of people prefer it with tonic water or uh, they prefer it in a mixed cocktail. All right. How do we find out more about the Craft Gin Trail? Well, the Craft Gin Trail, go to uh, the Craft Go to uh, craftgintrail.com um, or visit any one of the, the local uh, distilleries and you can pick up a brochure uh, at the distillery if you like. Great idea. Well, this Saturday, June 11th, World Gin Day, the Craft Gin Trail is uh, a great way to discover some of these great distilleries in Ontario, in our area. Marty Van Vliet with us, co-owner of Alora Distilling Company. Good luck with this more, uh, moving forward, Marty. Be well. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly know where we have been through the last uh, two and a half years during a, uh, a global pandemic, how difficult it has been on, on businesses and industry and not only our own um, uh, life, but uh, our mental health and such. It, there really isn't a corner of the world or a corner of society that has not been touched by this. Uh, and again, you, we remember all of the significant challenges there were 
before a global pandemic, and then, of course, all heightened during COVID-19. One of those situations uh, is obviously with food security, especially with the inflation we're seeing now and people's inability to keep food on the table. Where does that leave uh, organizations like Hamilton Food Share, uh, gains uh, on the pandemic itself, and now even coming out of the pandemic? Let's bring in jo- uh, Joanne Santucci, CEO Hamilton Food Share, and is with us now. Joanne, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, I am, and thank you so much for uh, for having me on today, Scott. Joanne, over the years, we've talked many times about the same sort of thing, and uh, it's always significant. It's always a concern. It's always an issue. How has, you know, and, and forget about the inflation we're experiencing now, but even going into uh, the global pandemic in the last two and a half years, what was it like at Hamilton Food Share? What, it's, what has it been like as far as uh, an uptake on seeing visit? Scott, I have learned so much, and basically it comes down to the Girl Scout and Boy Scout code. Be prepared for the next time. All you can do is learn what you can. Like, when the city was shutting down, we sent a message to City Hall. We are not closing, not in this time, not in this crisis. So we really didn't know what to expect. So we were going along, and the supply chain shortages were so brutal and so often that it was really getting alarming. What are we going to do by the time we get to the summer? You know, How are we going to mitigate it? Like, one time it shut down because there wasn't enough boxes being produced in yes. order to put the product yeah. in. How do, you, how do you plan for that? So it really was incumbent upon us to do a few things, and really we've escaped a lot of the pressures post-pandemic in that area because of all the work we did in our first year. So first and foremost, the city of Hamilton came by. They, they supported us in such a, an, I would call it a tsunami of support. It was this, hmm. the biggest bear hug I have ever gotten from the city. So I said, we have to do something so special with this, 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 uh, you know, this uh, supply. So what we did is I thought, during COVID, we expanded our list. We called everybody who had food. So we have a myriad now of suppliers beyond just the few that we had. So if anybody's having a problem, we just go to next on the list. Second, hmm. because of all of the help from our local community, we were actually able to do a huge um, annual food plan. So we would go to manufacturers, we would go to the major buyers and say to them, this is what we're planning on spending for the year in these products. So because of that, we had a relationship with the people who had their ear to the ground should there be shortages coming down the pipe. And uh, they were able to also give us heads up on two products already that we were able to actually get a couple months in. So we're, we're, we're bypassing any kind of problem with a shortage knowing that even if we ordered it today, it would probably take a couple months to come in. So So we bought enough to cover that jump. In your experience, in your time doing this, obviously you've never seen anything like this before. No, never. And because of the support from the local community, we're also able to hire a second storage place. So anytime there was an absolute unbelievable price on something, we had enough money to go get it and get enough of it to last us for a while until the next time, till the next shipment came in. So we're very smart about how we're doing things now. We're doing it in a planned way, a concerted way, and we're bringing in people um, that are in the know in the food industry, giving us that direction on when shortages may or may not occur. So we're really ahead of that game from all of the learning and all of the ability to bring in um, massive quantities of food. Uh, you know, it's such a large quantity of food we're bringing in that that cements that relationship. You know what I'm saying? So it's, I'm telling it's you that there, there is shortages. We're mitigating them at every turn because of what we learned that first year.
It's amazing that, you know, your concern also over and above the actual people who are coming in who knew, who need the help, but it's also now a case of how do we get the food in here to even give to them? Um, so uh, what about a rise in, in usage over the pandemic? Did you see that? Has that leveled off? Or now with the inflation, does it just keep going? Well, there was increases, but you didn't notice them at first because the rule of the game really was how to have the least amount of contact but the most amount of food you can give to somebody. Right, right. So we really got an expert at, we started giving out pampers for one person. If there was four people in your family, we gave you four. You didn't have to stand in line. You didn't right. have to do anything other than give us your name and we just marked down you came in. So we were actually trying to mitigate the long lineups and give people more food in three days. We were actually giving out, I think, between five and seven days worth of food. So anybody who had to come a second time uh, throughout that month didn't need to come. You know what I mean? So we were really trying to cut that down. So it was hard to figure that out. But when we get on the other side two years later, at the end of it, we can say that there are increases all over the place. We see seniors. It was just such an alarming stat for me. The first year, there was about a 15% increase. Last year, it was a 30% increase. Right now, if we look at averaging out since before COVID to after, it's almost up 34% are seniors. They should not be worried in our community. So school age children is also up. So, Joanne, is supply chain less an issue for you at this point? Obviously still a concern. Yes. And now the uptick in usage because of the inflation and the food insecurity we're seeing. And because it's safe to come out, it's okay to do the processes that we right. had prior to COVID. Hmm. So I think what the, the the real problem, too, is going to be food banks, too. We're going to have to grapple with the increase in cost in food. Everything we get in here is due to gas. Like we, we go to a yeah. place and buy stuff, we bring it back. We get donations, we go pick them up, we bring them back. Never mind the utilities and everything else that cost yeah. runs all of our equipment. So our basic, uh, our basic expenses are probably going to climb. But you know what I'm going to tell you? During COVID, we had so many dark moments. We didn't know how we can go, go further. And I can tell you there are such great friends of people in the food banking industry. And if it wasn't for that, I don't know how we would have got through the summer. We'll lean on our friends again when those times get tough. And you can really tell this community cares about vulnerable people. They care about seniors and babies and and people who can't put food on their table. So we have a lot of friends. And what we're going to do in the future is whatever we can't mitigate, we'll ask our friends to help carry that load. They've always been there for us and they'll continue to be there, I hope, in the near future. So if the average Hamiltonian is out there listening, how do we help? What is the best way for us to help Hamilton Food Share? Is it bring in product? Is it give money? What's the best way to help you? The best way for me is what do you feel comfortable doing? The most impact you can make is really through a financial donation because we can put that through to bulk buys where we can get five times the amount of money that money could buy on its own. And that's how we keep staying um, supplied is that that amount of money gets us uh, really good uh, buying prices, which are sometimes anywhere between 30 and 50% below retail. You know what I mean? So we're getting some massive uh, cuts in the amount of food and the prices, but we have to be able to get to that level of buying. So the money goes a long way because we can get five times more than what we can normally get in. And ever. But I want people to feel comfortable in how you give. How you give is important. So however that is for you, I'm okay with that. Joanne Santucci, you can hear the passion in her voice. And boy, that's been with her for years. CEO of Hamilton Food Share, coping not only with a global pandemic coming out of that, but now the food insecurity around uh, basic things like inflation. Joanne, thanks as always for the time. Good luck moving Thank forward. You, when there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott.
Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHMO. One of the great things about where we are now and lots of vaccination and boosting and such is that um, uh, the cases are way, way down. We're seeing restrictions being lifted and people are coming out and festivals are starting again, including uh, the ninth annual Something Else Festival returns to Hamilton starting the weekend of June 16th. Events are going to be held over the following four weeks at various venues until uh, July 16th. It's organized by Zula Music and Arts Collective uh, and uh, I guess celebrates uh, all kinds of different music to bring into and enrich Hamilton's cultural fabric. To talk more about all of this, uh, Jem Safir is with us, director. Zula presents something else and is with us now. Jem, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. So give us a bit of the history for this uh, festival. Tell everybody what it's like uh, for those that have never been there. Well, it's something you have to experience in person, for starters. Both the music and the experience in general are tough to videotape and and, uh, replicate in any way, shape, or form. You have to be there for the energy. And... uh, it's mostly jazz, improvised music, and that sort of thing that has been our focus since we started in 2014. <laughs> the reason for that was we didn't want to step on any toes, you know. That was the one thing that was really missing in town. But unfortunately, since then, a lot of organizations have either folded or, or on, are on uh, hiatus. So we kind of have expanded our boundaries. And we present a lot more than just jazz and improvised music. But that's still our focus. So uh, when this started way back when, you were looking for the hole in, in that place that, that wasn't being served. And now that's expanded. Well, in a way, that's true. But actually, it's a little different in that in Vancouver, where I presented music before, I covered everything from jazz to uh, bluegrass to electronica to classical, to whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, always kept it at a high level, but it was a wide range. But here, by the way, I'm on the street postering right now. so That's okay. Uh, <laughs> pardon the background noises. Um, so when we came here, we would have liked to have, we would have liked to have done the same, including dance, you know, modern dance right. to uh, world traditions to all sorts of stuff. But we didn't want to sort of, like I said, step on any toes. So we kind of narrowed our focus. But since then, things have changed a little. And we're presenting more variety. Obviously, a, a, yeah. obviously right. during a global pandemic, things have been difficult. What, how are you changing things? What, it, what, are, what can people expect for this year's edition of something else? Well, we never stopped, actually. We, as early as June, I can't remember the exact date, I think 16th or 17th of 2020 onward in the backyards to 10 people Hmm. even you know that was the limit yeah and even then we continued and ever since then we've done i would say 95 percent outdoor events usually at bayfront park which is a lovely albeit uh man-made park in hamilton and uh is sort of old industrial area turned uh, uh, turned sort of a luscious green space. Um, and uh, that's worked out really well. And we would do, you know, in 2020, for example, in the fall, we did 
six Saturdays in a row, uh, like we started out not to mess with the number of people involved. So we only had one or two or three acts. But mm-hmm. starting in 2021, we upped our game to, you know, four, five, six stack bills. <laughs> and, it, you know, in one place. So this year, we're using Bayfront again, just to, for those folks who are not comfortable going indoors. And frankly, we weren't even sure maybe we were going to do yeah. everything outdoors. But we feel kind of semi-confident. So we got a large enough space that we will take people indoors as well at the cotton factory. It's got uh, 300 capacity and uh, we'll probably fill it two-thirds max. And uh, although we're not we're not uh, mandated to or anything, but yeah. we, we kind of like to keep it safe and, you know, ask people to wear masks, that kind of thing. But uh, really, I mean, it feels safer. We've done a couple of three indoor shows in small spaces and, you know, again, we enforced the uh, mm-hmm. rules and it worked out. Of course, what happens even between now and next week? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Well, the good news is things appearing to be getting back to normal Mm -hmm. for this season. The ninth annual Something Else Festival in Hamilton starting the weekend of June 16th. Events held over the following four weeks at various venues up until July 16th. You can find out more at somethingelsefestival.com. Jem Zafir has been with us. Director Zula presents Something Else. Uh, Good luck with this, Jem, moving forward. Hopefully you'll have a great year this year. Thank you very kindly. Somethingelsefestival.com is where people want to go for more information. All right. You might remember that uh, a while ago, uh, and actually he promised this before the last election, but then uh, before uh, this could go through the House and pass uh, with his majority, I guess at the time, um, he, he called an election, and the, that being the prime minister during the pandemic, and this all went out the window. And now uh, the prime minister has once again announced that uh, he's introducing a handgun ban, and the result is Canadians are rushing to gun stores in order to make purchases before it becomes illegal. Shops have been reporting sellouts of handguns and a demand surge in the run-up to the freeze when it becomes law uh, in the fall. On the 30th of May, Trudeau announced a ban on all handgun sales after the mass shooting in Texas. Uh, The Prime Minister announced a national freeze on handgun ownership. It will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada once this becomes law. But again, as a result of this, uh, we're seeing a sellout. And what does that mean for black markets? What does that mean for the guns that come across the border and fuel most of the crime anyway all right let's bring in michael manager of al simmons gun shop he is with us now michael thanks for the time i hope you're well i am well thank you scott for having me so what have you seen since the announcement of this handgun ban michael what's uh, what's been the what's like business been like at your store a huge influx in legal purchases from legal firearm owners scott so give us an example. Uh, are, you, are you sold out? How many have you moved? Uh, how much of an increase have you seen over a, a typical week? Oh, typical week would be about a 1,000% increase. We're currently not sold out completely. We have since somewhat started to slow down as far as who's going to be buying and how much they're going to be buying, trying to inform the customer a little bit more educated 
on the more educated level of what's happening within the industry on more the political side. I believe the announcement just shocked a lot of people that were considering buying handguns, and that almost forced their hand that there was almost a rush or a push to because once it happens, we won't be able to get them anymore. And we spent the majority of our day dispelling rumors versus actual physical sales. We have a great support staff here as well as a couple bodies that help us within the industry. Uh, example, the CCFR, and they clarified a lot of things for the average gun owner and the people considering getting gun licenses as well. So that helped out a lot. So what does this mean, Mike, for those that are, uh, obviously there's going to be a handgun ban after uh, next year, but what does this mean for those that are buying now? Does it does this exclude them? I mean, so you can buy whatever you want up until that deadline? It's not illegal to have them, just buy and sell. Currently, yes. Currently, we're still allowed to per- or make purchases, or well, the legal gun owners are allowed to make purchases, as as legal businesses are allowed to sell uh, handguns, and the transfers have been started with the CFO's office here in Ontario, and then each according province have their own CFO's office, which is the Chief Firearms Office, which basically makes sure that all of the purchasers are of on the up and up and all the businesses that are selling to all the appropriate checks and balances are done and then there's a transfer period which is then upheld so currently once the transfer has been started to my working knowledge that transfer will probably now take a little bit longer to be approved and once that transfer is approved that said purchaser will get said handgun so once this uh, once somebody makes a customer makes a purchase and then the ban takes in effect they are not able to then sell them are they I believe that's how it's supposed to work. I'm not completely well-versed on the actual physical ban itself. A lot of it was convoluted with a lot of misinformation within the ban or a proposed freeze. I believe he chose a different word versus ban, which was a sell freeze or an import or export freeze as well. So I would have to go through with a fine-tooth comb a little bit more with someone who's a little bit more well-versed in legislative law to correctly answer that question. So, um, what is your impression of this as the manager of a gun shop? What are you hearing from customers? What's your response? The most what I hear, Scott, is just people are very, very frustrated and scared. It's more of a property point that they're making at this point versus you know a general handgun it's just something that they own which they have jumped through many many hoops to obtain licensing in canada is very very difficult it's not an easy license to obtain the physical pal or possession acquisition license period and then to abstain or restrict it for example we have to go through a huge transfer period so the people that are purchasing uh, these handguns are not traditionally inexpensive so it's they're Basically, the disposable income or their fun money, they call it, and they're coming in and spending, mm-hmm. and they very much enjoy the sport. I've met everyone from, you know, your average four-year-old all the way to your 80-year-old that's you know, wants to do something new out of retirement, and they very much enjoy the sport. They enjoy the hobby. It's very safe. So they are concerned on a property level that some of their property that they paid for, that they've paid good money for, they worked hard for, is just going to be simply null and void based on a government's decision without much foresight into that decision on how who it's going to affect you know for example 4800 businesses in Canada will be adversely affected by this so more more so concern Scott and the big picture for a lot of people that come through the doors some people are just well you know it's they're at it again we'll keep trying I don't think they'll get them and I'm like okay I'm trying to be positive too but a very much a mixed bag of feelings that people come through the door I meet some people are just irrational as far as they're purchasing they want to buy 10 at a time of course we don't let that happen but at the mm-hmm. same time, we try our best to educate who comes to the door, who are a little bit upset or irrational. And then usually once they leave the door, everything works out pretty well, and they understand. I'm like, well, I'm glad we stopped by. And I'm like, I'm glad you did too. 
Wow. So you, you're still waiting for clarity on all of this as well, what yeah, it's actually going so. to look like. Yeah, 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 very much so. All right, Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Manager of Al done. Simmons Gun Shop and uh, talking about panic buying as uh, the federal government has announced a freeze on gun ownership. People are buying them up before that is in place. Michael, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thank you so very much, Scott. You as well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Things seem to be uh, still floating around at levels higher than what we were last fall when we still had a variety of mandates in place. So it's a strange time to be lifting mandates in my mind. That's Dr. Raywat Diomandin, an epidemiologist, uh, comparing last year to where we are now in case numbers higher now because everybody and their mother has had it. Everybody knows somebody that's had it. Um, so I don't know. We'll ask uh, Dr. Ahmad Khalid about this, but it seems a little misleading. You know, we've heard many times I've had, not many times, the odd times somebody say, well, the case numbers are higher now and because everybody knows somebody that's had it, but the case numbers are higher now, but it's a different variant. Last year, it wasn't Omicron. It was Delta, which was much more deadly than what Omicron is. Omicron spreads faster, but certainly is not as deadly as what uh, Delta was. Also, uh, now we have almost 90% of us vaccinated, which creates a, a completely different scenario. So to mention case numbers, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that's an accurate description of what's going on, but let's get some balance. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with his health policy exter- expert. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Same to you. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Ahmad, I don't want to cloud this up in any way. Uh, you know, I, I'm behind the, the vaccination and boosters and everybody should get it. But, uh, you know, when people say this, it's kind of misleading because the high numbers now are much, much different than what numbers were a year ago. Is that accurate? Absolutely. So, I mean, we always said that when we look at COVID, we are looking at hospitalization numbers and not less so on case numbers. You're correct. That it seems like more people might have COVID, but however, the number of hospitalizations has decreased over the last uh, seven days. So when I look at the data right now, we're looking at less than 10 percent. Uh, of people uh, hospitalization rates uh, in Ontario compared to last week. So in, in overall, that tells us that, you know, we are handling the pandemic in terms of a strain on the health system. The case numbers can increase and that's okay as long as that doesn't lead into hospitalizations or increase in death numbers. Your thoughts on uh, Dr. Kira Moore announcing today that he would let the mask mandates expire in Ontario on Saturday, uh, with the exception of nursing homes, long-term care. Your thoughts? My thoughts are if you don't want to get COVID because it's not the the most fun thing to have, keep continue wearing your mask, especially in areas that are, uh, you know, Mm. attended heavily by people. So, you know, every person will make their own decision on whether they want to continue wearing the mask or not. My suggestion would be based on the evidence is try to at least wear them when there's a lot of people around you. So when you're on public transit, when you're in a shopping mall, when you feel like you're too close to people for a prolonged period of time, you know, wear the mask because it gives you this extra layer of protection. Because what we don't want to end up happening is you getting COVID and then having to miss out on fun events over the summer. Because the reality is, if you talk to anybody who's gotten COVID, it's quite terrible. The first couple of days, you feel sick and you don't feel like going out and you feel bedridden and tired. You know, we want to avoid having those symptoms. 
And we uh, a reminder, even though the mandates aren't there, you you're still can you can still wear one. And there's many situations where if you're feeling a little apprehensive, by good by all means, uh, make sure you are wearing Absolutely. one. Absolutely. L- yeah. Let's talk about um, Moderna coming out today or the other day and saying that now their version, their newest, latest version of their vaccine will inc- include uh, some protection against the Omicron variant, which again raises the question as people are saying, "What is fully vaccinated now?" And, and we've talked about this before, Ahmad, but, you know, again, I guess with time, we'll see more clarity. But what will the future of this look like? Will, will, it, will it be a case of now when, it, when when a year expires or whenever it's time, you'll go in and get your Moderna shot or your Pfizer shot and it will be updated with the latest variants, very much like the flu shot? Is that how this is going to work moving forward? What's the yeah, problem, do you think? That's that's correct. I think that we, we always anticipated that as time progresses and as new variants present themselves, that the booster shots will need to be modified. You know, the vaccines you and I received and many others is based on the original coronavirus and not the the the, the variants that have emerged mm-hmm. since then. And so the Moderna study you're talking about is still early. The research evidence is not very clear on it yet. We're waiting on more final results uh, to look into it more carefully. You know, the other thing, Scott, is that just because there's a new booster shot doesn't mean people are going to be necessarily lining up to get it. I think there is a mm. concern that, you know, the majority of people feel now that they don't need another booster shot because they've re- they've gotten COVID. It wasn't that bad and they didn't die from it and they didn't end up being hospitalized. So they're more accepting of not being vaccinated and having to contract the virus. That might change in the fall. And I think this is where the conversation is at now as kids go back to school and the case numbers are going to increase because we're more going to be indoors. Is this going to cause a strain on our health system? And in that case, do we need to be watching that carefully to see whether a booster shot needs to become more of a mandate? Do do we know how long this protection will last if you've got your two and your booster or whatever? Any idea how long you can go before um, it starts to be a concern? Or do we know that information yet? We do know that information based on earlier studies. We know that, you know, when we received the first two doses of the vaccine at the beginning of the pandemic, the immunity only lasted about six to 12, six to nine months. And so, uh, and don't quote me on that date, but it was around that date. So um, that's, you know, we know that the immunity does wane off over time. Like this vaccine will not stay you know, the immunity right. that you receive from this vaccine does not remain with you for a lifetime. Uh, and then there is an expiry date on it. However, when you also couple that with you getting the virus, you know, you having COVID does develop a, a sense of immunity with you. And so you're developing sort of a double immunity in that case. We still don't know how that would look like if people have received the vaccine and the booster and uh, contracted COVID. How long does their immunity last? When do you think we'll get information that will say, uh, all right, winter, maybe is it this fall, as you suggested, you know, winter's coming. We're suggesting uh, those 60 plus go in and get another shot. Oh, I I suspect that will come in the next couple of weeks, if not a month or so, right before school starts. I think that we we are anticipating that announcement. However, the real question is how many people are actually going to be lining up to get that booster? Do you think it will be age relevant as it was before or it will be open to everyone? Uh, will, you know, many have questioned whether the kids need that extra booster or not. Any information there? 
From a policy perspective, I think it's going to start with being age relevant. So we're going to see our elderly and immunocompromised and people in congregate settings like prisons and, and nursing homes and shelters to be the priority setting, people that will receive this vaccine and then open it and expanding to anybody else that might be interested in it. That's just based on uh, previous history of how we've rolled out our vaccine, given the numbers and the resources that are available. Uh, many question uh, the various variants that came on and continued. It appeared because Omicron spread so quickly, it kind of shoved the other ones out. Are there other variants of concern on the horizon at this point? The virus will continue to mutate. So we don't have one beyond the ones that we already know about now, but we are keeping a close eye to see if others evolve or develop over time. You know, we've always said this, that COVID will remain with us for as long as we know. And so, you know, for now, we're just being vigilant and, and countries around the world are being extra vigilant as to uh, what new variants might evolve or mutate and that might present themselves as more dangerous and require an upsoar of our ability and capacity to withstand our healthcare system towards them. Um, uh, quick question. We've only got a, about a minute left, 30 seconds left. In regard to the situation we're seeing at the airports, many are saying that, that there's just too much protocol for the, the surge in passengers. It was based on half that capacity. Do we still need these, uh, these uh, protocols at an airport? suspect that will change very soon. I think they're having a lot of pressure to actually dismantle that system and, and to make more ease restrictions for people who are traveling, especially given the news of how crazy the airports have been recently. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with us, health policy expert, talking about all things COVID, where we are, boosters and such, and also travel. Uh, doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Same to you. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Lots going on there today, whether it's uh, Ford and his new cabinet or uh, the latest, which COVID-19 mask mandates will be lifted or will be allowed to expire as of Saturday. Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, afternoon, Scott. Thanks for having me. So mask mandate will be allowed to expire on Saturday. Was there much pressure to keep this going? It just sort of came and went. What happened? Well, I, yeah, I would say that the pressure really hasn't been there, at least from a public perspective. Uh, we've been seeing, you know, internally hospitals would have likely loved to have kept it on. Uh, but, you know, going forward, it seems like uh, whether you're in a hospital or a public uh, place of public transportation, you will no longer be required to make uh, to wear the mask. Now, the chief medical officer of health said hospitals and uh, transportation systems, they can create their own uh, sets of rules if they so mm. wish. But we haven't seen any indication that whether it's Go Transit or, you know, the Toronto Transit System in, in this city, as an example, are going to implement any kind of mandatory masking policies because the CMOH says, listen, it is still a choice. And anyone who chooses to wear a mask should absolutely wear a mask because that's yeah. their personal wh whatever makes them feel comfortable. Uh, any obviously we've just finished an election and, uh, you know, I'm sure most parties are, are having a bit of a rest right now. But any uh, reaction from opposition on on these uh, letting expire? Not right now. I mean, in general, you are going to see a bit of discomfort, especially coming from those in the healthcare sector. So the chief medical officer of health has decided to leave the masking mandate in place for long term care homes and mm. retirement homes. But hospitals 
you know, there will not be any mandatory masking policy. So that could, you know, set up a new uh, kind of battleground for those who don't want to wear the mask, whether or not they, uh, you know, feel like their rights are being trampled on or, you know, the hospital is going against provincial policy, uh, that could be a new battleground. So you might see individual hospitals still insist that you wear a mask. I mean, certainly, you know, when you're out and about, you might see a restaurant or some stores or some places of business require that you wear a mask. Some schools, as an example, have, you know, still generally been asking people to wear masks, even though it's not an official policy. So we could see some hospitals run into some issues. But for the most part, we haven't seen a large pushback just yet. All right, Doug Ford working on a new cabinet, obviously after uh, an election win. Uh, Any rumors floating around? Obviously, Christine Elliott, the big one, health minister is out. How difficult will that be to replace? Yeah, so this is going to be an enormous challenge for Doug Ford and his uh, and and those who are considering who goes into cabinet and who stays out. And this is why they elected, including the premier, 83 MPPs in the last election. So he's got about 82 uh, MPPs who now could be potential cabinet ministers. And the premier has to balance a lot of things, right? He's got old cabinet ministers from the previous uh, government who some of them really performed well in his eyes and would be in line for a promotion. So the Ministry of Health is the biggest position that really is vacant. Um, and, and there are lots of questions about who would go there. That that person really needs to be a good communicator and a good manager because they're dealing with a huge hospital system and an incredible healthcare bureaucracy um, and, and, and a lot of other things that uh, the government needs to keep a, a handle on, including the surgical backlog. So you know, potential names who could go in there, Sylvia uh, Jones, Peter Beth, uh, not Peter Beth, I'm probably, sorry, Sylvia Jones, it could be Stephen Lecce, Caroline Mulrooney, um, Greg Rickford, and others could be top performing cabinet ministers going in there. But the other thing that uh, he really needs to kind of balance there are new ridings that voted PC for the first time. Places mm. like in Windsor, in Hamilton, in uh, you know parts of Toronto, in parts of northern Ontario. He's got to reward those ridings with a seat at the table. So that's the delicate balance that he has going forward. And not everyone is going to be happy. That's the problem. Uh, it should be interesting to see how that pans out. Uh, obviously, uh, leadership of the Liberal Party and the NDP have stepped down. Any information as to where or when they're going to select new leaders? Any information there? Yeah, so chances are uh, those two parties are still licking their wounds, trying to figure out first what happened, and then second, figuring out what goes next. So uh, as an example for the NDP, you know, a lot of this is listed in their constitution that every party has that kind of governs how the party should act. So it will be a choice made by the party itself, not by other NDP caucus members, who will decide who the interim leader is. Uh, Once that's selected, then they start going about the business of figuring out what the procedure is for the leadership, right? And and, and they have to have some kind of a a process in place, what the entry fee will look like, um, you know, uh, how many signatures you need in order to uh, run for the leadership. And, And you know, um, how, how many votes you might need, whether it's a one member, one vote system, or it's kind of a delegated convention, all of that stuff needs to really uh, be thought out before they start this leadership process. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't expect that to happen for, you know, maybe another year, year and a half. For Stephen Del Duca, as an example, uh, you know, it took two years after Kathleen Wynne resigned for them to pick a leader. So hmm. this could take a while. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief. Never dull there. Make sure you're watching Global News uh, tonight for more on all of this. Colin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Peel Regional Police and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP, uh, say an alleged attack at a Mississauga mosque back in March constituted terrorist activity and uh, will lay a charge uh, as a result of that. Uh, police said on March 19th, a man walked into the center and sprayed bear spray at members of the mosque while brandishing a hatchet. Officers said members of the mosque quickly subdued the man until police arrived. Uh, is this a terrorism charge? Is it domestic terrorism? What is the difference? Let's bring in Phil Gursky, President Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former CSIS analyst. Phil, thanks for the time again. Hope you're doing well. Very well, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks for your time. Uh, your thoughts on this? Um, you know, at one time, uh, many would not call things like this a terrorist activity. Um, is there a difference between domestic terrorist and international terrorism? Uh, what's your, what are your thoughts on this charge? Well, not really, Scott. It, it doesn't matter where it happens, whether it's domestic or international. What matters is, is the motivation behind it. And under the criminal code, it has to be for an ideological, political, or religious reason. And in the lack of details on this particular case, and I remember it happening at the time, I don't see any of those applying in this case. I have no idea why the man entered the mosque with what intent. But the Crown has to prove it is one of those three. It's not causing fear. I mean, spiders cause fear, Scott. Spiders aren't terrorists. I mean, bit facetious here, but I'm a little bit concerned when, when we're throwing around terrorism charges, you know, here, there, and everywhere in cases which sometimes are just hate crimes, and that's a different part of the criminal code. And sometimes I'm really struggling to see the ideological link to it, which to me is a critical part for calling terrorism. And when I worked at CSIS, that's what we investigated, people who were ideologically motivated to plan acts of violence. You talked about hate crime versus terrorism. Explain your point. So a hate crime is when you target someone because of who they are, you know, their skin color, their face, their sexuality, whatever kind of thing. And that's a different part of the criminal code. Terrorism is somewhat similar, but it has to have an ideological underpinning Mm. to it. So you subscribe to a certain terrorist group like Al-Qaeda, for example, or a neo-Nazi group. And based on what I saw in this attack in Mississauga, I don't see that happening in this case. Now, again, I don't have the evidence that the police has before them. Obviously, the Crown is, is elected to lay terrorism charges. They must know something I don't know. But I do, again, as I said earlier, I worry that we're throwing around this term for reasons that aren't clear, at least not to me. Uh, is this due to public pressure? We've certainly saw the Prime Minister at the anniversary of the, the horrific death of that family in London, the Muslim family, uh, and such, and actually use the word terrorism, where at one time he wouldn't, he wasn't quick to use that word. 100%, Scott. We are living in a time now where, you know, it's true that there have been hate crimes, I'd call them hate crimes against Canadian Muslims, against Canadian African Americans, whatever you want to, you know, fill in the blank kind of thing. And we're now in a part where the government seems to want to say that anything that targets people because of their ethnicity or their religion seems to be terrorism. And again, you know, the problem, Scott, is that the Crown has to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. When we've had cases like the guy at Edmonton mm. a couple of years ago ran over a police officer outside Commonwealth Stadium with an ISIS flag on his van, wasn't charged with terrorism. I mean, he was found guilty of attempted murder. So there's no reason to, to use the terrorism label for the simple reason that the sentence at the end, if he's found guilty, is the same whether it's attempted murder, murder, or terrorism. So it, it, it posts a burden on the Crown that's not necessary, in my view. We've seen recently government suggesting where we need to study and, and appointing people to study Islamophobia. Are we getting distracted with this? I think we are. And there's, there's no question that, you know, there is a, a phenomenon of people that fear or don't like Muslims. That's entirely true. Yeah. Again, that, yeah. that's more of the hate spectrum than me. But 
uh, pound for pound or kilo for kilo, Scott, around the world, and I do this on a daily basis when I tweet, the vast majority of terrorist attacks carried out by people around the world are carried out by, by jihadi, Islamist terrorists. So I, I do fear we're, we're sort of missing the forest for the trees. All terrorism should be, should be condemned. And, you know, thankfully we have ceased in the RCMP to stop it. But I do worry that we're going down a politically correct sort of pathway in which some terrorism is more important than others, and I don't like that. Wouldn't a terrorism charge be harder to prove than a hate crime as well? I mean, so aren't you setting yourself up for failure by Absolutely. using a hammer where you need attack? Absolutely. And as I said, the sentence in the end is the same. Whether you're guilty of terrorism or, or first-degree murder or attempted murder, the sentences are the same. And you're right, the, the burden of proof is on the Crown to do that. I've been led to believe, and again, I'm not a lawyer, that even if the Crown can't prove terrorism in a case... Uh, they, they'll, they'll get a conviction on, on, on murder. So in other words, they don't run a big risk of losing the case to prove terrorism because the other charges will, will, will follow okay. But again, it, it, to me, it's just, this is a political message being sent, and I don't like it. I don't think it's necessary in these cases. Uh, should we spend more time understanding what hate crime is all about? Is that the solution here? I think so. And, you know, hate crimes can be for all kinds of reasons, Scott. As I said, it, it doesn't, you know, it can be a person's ethnicity, their religion, their color, their, their sexual, you know, whatever kind of thing. And I, I think that, again, that, that under, in Canadian law, if you're found guilty of a hate crime, the judge actually has the leeway to increase your sentence. So if, you're, if you beat someone up, Scott, it turns out you beat them up because of who they are. The judge can say, well, it's 10 years for assault, extra five because it's a hate crime. And that same clause doesn't apply to terrorism. So I'm with you on this one. I think we should look a lot more to hate crimes. They're easier to determine, and they end up in longer sentences for the people that carry them out. Phil Gursky, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and former CSIS analyst. Phil, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Take care. Refining margins or the difference between the price of crude oil and the price of, you know, gasoline that you put in your tank are at or near all time highs. So we are in truly unprecedented territory and there doesn't seem to be any, you know, near term relief on the horizon. Now we're in the situation where you just really don't have enough refining capacity in North America and no one's going to be building any new refineries anytime soon either, because there hasn't been a new refining complex in North America since the 1970s. So I think that is the, the kind of the thing you need to keep in your back of your mind that there really isn't a quick fix at the end of this. This sounds like a show we did five or 10 or 15 years ago with Dan McTagg telling us exactly all of this about the loss of refining capacity and where we are now. Well, we have shut down the Canadian energy industry before we have realistic alternatives available to us. And as a result, the world is is suffering and Canada's standing there in nice looking socks and a selfie. Uh, a couple of fascinating CBC articles, which uh, are kind of deceiving, I want to read to you and Dan McTagg waiting for us. Oil prices are rising, but Canada is getting compar- comparatively less for every barrel. Why? And then goes on to say the gap between the benchmark oil price and the cost for oil sands blend is widening. And Dan will tell you because we can't get this stuff to market because it's landlocked in Alberta. So uh, the only alternative is the U.S., who buy it at a discount. Here's another headline. Using natural gas as a climate solution will become a climate problem. LNG can displace coal power abroad, but will need to be replaced in the long run. 
Yes, it will. But a lot like the renewable energy, we are not there yet. So how do we fix things in the short term? Uh, let's bring in Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. He's with us now. Dan, I hate to say I told you so, but you could tell us a bazillion times. You told us, didn't you? Well, yes, and for the reasons stated. It's amazing that uh, you have analysts in the United States who I warned when I said gas buddy would happen, but Americans were oblivious to what was going on in Canada. The experiment had worked very well. Landlock our oil, shut down our pipelines, uh, you know, uh, look after green grifters, uh, give people a whole pile of money to go out and complain about the government, complain about the climate, so in turn that they could uh, justify their own existence and then have municipalities, one after another, line up to shut down natural gas plants uh, to potentially leave us in a you know an awful uh, situation. But yeah, look, the world is now short of oil. It's short of natural gas, it's, uh, uh, at least LNG. Uh, we could have had one, two, at least three LNG plants. We've chosen to shut them down. We chose to block them. We chose to say no. We listened to a minority in this country who fanatically thought that there'd be no consequence for all this. Well, now it is. And so if you don't like 214, 213 a liter for gasoline, the 20, 30, 40% increase you're seeing at the, uh, uh, at the grocery store, you have no one to blame but yourself. And I, and I don't mean to be disrespectful or nasty to people, but they knew full well this was going to happen. And you start messing around with the very thing this country needs, the world needs. You know, is any wonder inflation's out of control and Vladimir Putin continues his bloody war against the Ukrainians. We finance that. We help that happen, unfortunately, through our own short-sightedness. And the funny thing is about this article is it admits that LNG, Canadian liquid natural gas, is the solution to the problem. But they said, but eventually in 20 or 30 years, that will become a problem. Well, yeah, that's the same that. sort of, that's the same sort of attitude they've had with shutting down the Canadian industry before there's any sort of alternatives. I saw this article this morning re- retweeted by somebody and I, I, I said, I didn't know who the author was and I realized who it was. It was this guy from Toronto who, thinks he knows how to predict prices. This guy is basically a, doing a sideshow uh, and apologizing and trying to find some deflection or defense from the fact that this country killed pipelines. And in the process, uh, it's one of the main reasons why we're only getting $115 a barrel or rather $109 a barrel for the Canadian ba- for Western, uh, Western Canadian Select when the rest of the world's getting uh, you know, an additional tenor. That's not a new story, by the way, an additional $10. What it really means is that uh, the grifters, the green guys, are going to try everything they can to double down on the mistake that they made. Europe has demonstrated to Canadians in no uncertain way that relying on renewables is going to bring your economy to a standstill and it's going to destroy uh, our, your ability to make ends meet, much less transportation, much less keep yourself warm. Britain's got a problem. Uh, Spain has a problem. Uh, Germany has a massive problem, and uh, unfortunately, the only guy who's, uh, who's getting the financing to do all this stuff is Vladimir Putin. We ought to really give our heads a shake. Uh, and those out there who are trying to dismiss the idea that Canadian oil is being discounted because, oh, there's a, a difference in the blend and refinery yeah. margins. Let me tell you something. The Americans have light, tight oil. They're not producing enough of it, by the way. They're down a million and a half barrels from where they were pre-COVID. Listen to this. You can't make diesel with the oil that they make in the United States. You need Canadian heavy blends. No one has it from Mexico. Mexico is not exporting anymore. Venezuela can't export anymore. And Saudi Arabia says basically no to the United States. So whoever this guy was, I know his name, uh, he ought to be ashamed of himself. But I've called, on, I've called him out on it. And uh, if the CBC thinks that's cute and fun and trendy, well, then let the CBC continue its disinformation. Because if now you're going to attack natural gas, 
Why not just attack electricity and tell everybody to live in the state of nature, eating acorns, wearing animal skins? Because that is exactly where these people are leading us. Well, just like in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s when they shut all the refineries down and then started buying our dirty product from other bad actors, they were betting on a solution that wasn't there. And now here we are 40 years later, and they're saying, well, natural gas, although it's the solution, it will end up being the problem. And in doing the exact same thing 40 years later. Scott, these people are the problem. Uh, look, the the, 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 the wor- weather is doing just fine, thank you. Yeah, we're going to get warm days, we're going to get cold days, we're going to get uh, storms, and we're going to get snowstorms. Uh, s- just leave this thing alone, for God's sakes. I mean, I've been around people like uh, Morris Strong, who pulled this nonsense in 1978. I, I saw this thing again 10, 15 years later from, uh, you know, uh, the Al Gores of this world. I saw this 10 years after that with the Stefan Dion's of this world and the David Suzuki's. I've had enough. I've lived long enough to know what looks like a dishonest and very fraudulent approach. And if people want to get all worried and up in arms about the climate, I can tell them, wait in 15 years and see how stupid it was for you to have gotten so alarmist. People need to stop the climate bedwetting and start dealing with the reality that's in front of us. We have an inflationary problem, we have an affordability problem, and we have a world that is very close to an energy crisis, made worse now by a security crisis, thanks to our unwillingness to get a product that the world needs that's done very cleanly in this country, and I'll bar, bar none any other country in the world, we're only willing to uh, look at, uh, you know, really a, a gift horse in the mouth, and I think that's a shame. It's typical Canadian, dump on your own stuff, but stop following these Pied Pipers because they don't know what they're talking about. They're full of hops. It seems the Prime Minister is the only one not talking about the high energy prices, and we've heard in some circles over there that this is what they're hoping for. They're hoping that the price goes so high that it changes people's behavior, but again, as I stress, before there's any alternative. (laughs) Scott, your listeners, here in Hamilton, in the Halton region, in and around the 900 CHML, let them know that in four weeks, maybe five your federal Liberal government that you voted for, and NDP and their friends, are going to be bringing in the clean fuel standard, the second carbon tax. Now, that mm. won't mean overnight you're going to see another tax increase. What it means is that between now and the next six years, gasoline, diesel will go up anywhere from 15 to 20 cents a liter because, you, you know, you have to buy carbon offsets. They want to drive you out of your internal combustion engine, which is a lot cleaner to the environment than building an EV. At the same time, they want to impose two or three more taxes. These folks are so clearly out to lunch. I'm shocked that the Canadian public and voters in our listening area here are willing to go along with this nonsense. What is it going to take, folks? Four or five dollars a litre? Losing your home? Not being able to make ends meet? Not being able to work? uh, Having no future for your kids? Allowing Vladimir Putin to attack another country? What will it take for people to wake up, Scott? And honest to goodness, I'm shocked at the level of ignorance in this country. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, a former Liberal MP, talking about uh, what else? Gas prices and their continuation, or the continuing rise. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. All perfect. Scott, how are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, today, the announcement comes out from Dr. Kieran Moore that as of Saturday, the uh, mandatory mask uh, mandates will expire. This kind of came and went, and there wasn't didn't seem to be a lot of opposition to it. Uh, your thoughts? Are, are we ready to move on? Uh, well, look, uh, yes or no. I mean, uh, my thought on this one is I think 
whether we're at the thought of whether we're ready to move on, I think a lot of people are. And I think some people aren't. And I think we're adults uh, or we're, yeah. you know, adults who are looking over kids. We can start to make some of our own decisions. And that, that's, that's really, for me, where this, where this is at now. I mean, we've got very few people, relatively speaking, being seriously ill with this. I mean, down to the numbers where, and I know it's really unpopular or people poo-poo this, but like we're down to the numbers where you would have the same number of people probably with the flu or with something else. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so it's time. To me, it's time. It's time to start letting people make their own decisions on this and ex- assume the risks if they want or whatever. But, uh, you know, I, I, think we've, I think we've reached that point, Scott, where people are saying, yeah, let, let me start to make some of my health decisions. And again, you know, when you're in a situation where you're not feeling comfortable, by all means, you can still put one on. It's not like it's illegal to to, to wear one by any means. I found it a little misleading by some, and I've had uh, the odd one, not many on the show that have said, well, you know, the case numbers are higher now than they were last year at this time, and yet we're removing restrictions. And it's like, oh, my goodness, that's misleading because... Uh, last year, the variant was Delta, and it was deadly, whereas right, right. now it's Omicron, and it spreads much faster, which is why the numbers are higher, but it's also driven the deadlier Omicron variant out. Uh, plus, we have 90% plus people vaccinated, so it's a very, very different world uh, than it was and, a, and a year know, ago. I, I read something, Scott, the other day, and I can't remember. It might have been in the spec. It might have been somewhere else. I can't remember. I read something the other day, and you know, like let's have some compassion as well. This was from people who were saying, look, we are the people who are compromised, and when everyone's sure. taking their masks off, it's making our world, our world more dangerous. And I understand that, and I don't want to be you know, totally cold-hearted and saying, too bad, you know, stay home then if you don't want to come out. That, however, I will say this, there are people who are compromised for all kinds of things, and there are all kinds of health issues and the reality is we don't stop society or put in these overriding rules for all things that might affect someone. Like, for example, we do put rules in at school, say don't bring peanuts or peanut butter to schools because we have some kids with allergies. But we don't have rules across society that says peanuts are banned anywhere yeah. but in your own kitchen. Yeah. There, are, like, there are things that we do that are reasonable precautions, and there are other things we do that we do say you know, we recognize that you have this issue that you, that's very serious for you, but at a certain point, it does sort of rely on you to make the good safety decisions for yourself because we can't possibly put rules in to protect everybody against everything. We just can't. Um, let's talk about uh, electoral reform, because it seems whenever one side loses an election, the other side is looking at electoral reform. Uh, I think we have like, what, four or five, six parties now in Ontario. So the vote gets split up, uh, uh, you know, pretty tight. The pie, the pie is a uh, piece of the pie is getting smaller. Uh, and many start screaming about electoral reform, including our prime minister after he won his first majority. However, it never really seemed to take hold. And then with his first minority, which was against Andrew Scheer, Andrew Scheer got more of the popular vote. So where would that result have been with electoral reform? It, it seems that, you know, we're having the discussion depending on who's won, who's lost. Of course it is. If your guy or your woman won, the system works. And if your person didn't win, the system is broken and stupid. And look at how low the numbers are. I mean, uh, we're hearing about people saying, you know, Doug Ford only got 40%. That's still... 
something like six or seven percent higher than Justin Trudeau got to be prime minister. Yeah. Um, and the, so the people on the left in Ontario who are screaming that Ford is not a legitimate leader because he didn't really get more than 40 percent. But yet for the rest of the country, the people on the right are screaming that, well, Trudeau is not legitimate because he only got <laughs> whatever number. It, yeah. it's, it, if your person wins, the system is fine. Here's the big, <laughs> here's the big thing, Scott, that I just... Every time this comes up, there's a bunch of different answers people give, and the one that always comes up is the Australian model. We must make voting mandatory or you get a fine. To me, that is the absolute worst idea that you could possibly come up with. We talked about this on my show a couple weeks ago. The last thing we want to do is make it a requirement for someone who has paid zero attention to any of the issues, who knows nothing about what's going on, and couldn't give a rip to say, yeah, cast a vote because your vote is really important. As far as I'm concerned, those people, we love you, but those people, we should, we should be telling them, don't vote. Leave the voting to the people <laughs> who actually care about this stuff. However, that's we- a popular position. But we do love you anyway, whether you vote or, or, or not. Uh, Scott course. Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. See you, Scott. We could do this all day. I know, exactly. Uh, we should one day. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thank you to the two Wills and Dave for helping out. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. It's Jim here. Now that we're finally dropping those damn masks, can people stop yelling at me for not washing my hands? not like I'm going to spread anything to you. Ew!